0: I'm Dr. Cara Santa Maria, and you're listening to the European Skeptics Podcast, the real ESP experience. You told
1: You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast. An independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 401. I'm your host, Andreas Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Annika Harrison and Pontus Böckmann. See Stock! Hello. Hey, son. Hey, son. I am active and awesome
2: in the region. So I'm oh, yeah? trying to do it. Oh, yeah. good for you. <laughs> I'm <not> trying <laughs> yeah, to. Never... I'm, try- I'm telling myself. I'm telling myself. How are you guys? <laughs> I never good, feel good. like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
3: I'm also very partly from Europe.
1: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that I can say about myself as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I am from <laughs> Europe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Don't know how awesome <laughs> I am. Uh, but, <laughs> but I try. <laughs> So, things are good with you guys, I hope? I think so. Mm -hmm.
3: I I think I want to quickly talk about something that is also active and awesome, but also happening in the German um, skeptical scene right now. Mm, Okay. Because Medwatch, or Medwatch, whatever you want to call it, is getting taken to court. They are very popular or very known, well known to skeptics around Europe because they report on fraudulent or difficult or woo medical things. So the chair of information network homeopathy, Jutta Hübner, is also part of Midwatch, for example. It was founded mm-hmm. by Nicola Kurt and Hinak Feldwisch Dendrup. The latter also wrote a really interesting article about midwifery and woo. So it's like, they're both active and awesome, as I said. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) And the whole association of MedWatch is also really important. We talked about it on the show before. And as I said, they're getting taken to court because they reported about a guy called uh, Christian Wolf. I don't want to say too much about it because I don't want to get taken to court. (laughs) So, um... I'll just leave it at that. But they need money for that. Uh, we'll put a link in the show notes. Anyone, every, every little bit helps.
1: <laughs> mm, yeah, very good. And I'm pretty sure that they, they explain everything in detail on the exactly. link. So they have worded it in the way that they have probably consulted legal experts already. And yeah. we don't <laughs> want to ruin any of that. Um, yeah, so just follow the link. Of course.
2: But, and, and even if you are... Even if you even haven't done anything wrong, it can still be very, very expensive to be yeah. sued. Yeah. And very often, and I don't know this case, so I'm talking in general terms, mm-hmm. but very often people just sue to make people shut up or to mm-hmm. frighten them or yeah. to make them pay a lot. And uh, I hope that uh, this is uh, over soon and that mm-hmm. uh, uh, everything comes to who uh, deserves it.
3: Yes, exactly.
2: Unfortunately,
1: (laughs) slap lawsuits are very frequent in the the realm of uh, science and skepticism. Because when you absolutely have no scientific background of what you're claiming, you ultimately can only resort to some kind of a a scare tactic. So, you know what? I don't know how to argue anymore, so shut up. <laughs> and then that's, yeah. that's yeah. basically yeah. how it works. It's always yeah. a little bit suspicious when you see someone taking someone to court over a scientific debate because scientific debates are not conducted in law courts. No, it's a different field. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Okay. But exactly. that's uh, interesting. We will follow that, of course. Mm-hmm. These things sometimes take a lot of time to to be sorted yeah, out. Yeah, it's,
3: it's like a chess game.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> can yeah, be very quick. Will, uh, It Can also
3: take super long.
2: Keep a have a look at it uh, f- over time and see what's happening.
3: Mm-hmm. And I can also put the article that was like the spark that took them to court. I can also put that article into the show notes yeah. um, so yeah. that yeah, people so can leave. read yeah. what what was so so evil.
2: <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we may be European. Yeah, Well, we actually have an interview with
1: an American today. Ooh. Oh, and I'm <laughs> yeah. so envious that you could, you yeah. guys could be there and I couldn't. <laughs> so, Annika
2: and I could. Um, yeah. I'm yeah. sorry, Andras, we kept you out of it. We didn't tell you. You had no invitation. You didn't know about it. So we Which just is sneaked all... off and did it. Which is all not true. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we interviewed Cara Santa Maria of the SGU fame mm-hmm. and Talk Nerdy fame and a lot of other fame that we will get into in the actual yeah. interview
3: and Doctor fame, <laughs> Doctor
2: fame, very important. Mm-hmm. She is now Doctor Cara Santa Maria, an awesome person, science communicator, of course, an amazing and, one of the uh, one of the best, absolutely. So she was so generous with her time as well, and we had a long talk, and we got into some. Um, I think some subjects that uh, she is not allowed to talk about on the STU because they have a certain policy of what they're a science podcast and they want to talk about science. But there are other things in life as well. But I will um, refer to the interview. You can listen for yourself.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Let's do that. So excited. <laughs>
3: Every now and then we interview someone whose work is of interest to our listeners and skeptics around Europe. With us today is science communicator Dr. Cara Santamaria. In the skeptical movement, she is mostly known as one of the rogues of the Skeptics' Guide to the Universe podcast and for her own podcast, Talk Nerdy. She's also a clinical psychologist and she recently received a PhD in clinical psychology with a concentration on social justice and diversity. Kara, welcome back to the ESP. <laughs> oh, thanks so much for having me. Yeah,
2: great to see you back. It's been a while. We just yes. looked at it. It was actually 7 years ago you were you <laughs> made a brief appearance uh, at QED. Uh, Andras and Jelena at the time cornered you in the corridors there, and and <laughs> gave a, and you were kind enough to give a short interview. It was only fifteen minutes, so I think I think you have such a interesting career and a presence, and you have done so many things. So I think this time we'll try to dive in a little bit deeper. And if I may go back even to the absolute beginning, I hear that you were born in a Mormon family. Is is that right?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I grew up, I was born in, and raised in um, Texas in the US to a uh, Mormon father and mother. They were both converts to the religion together. I'm not sure if they converted before or after they were married, but right around the time when they were married. So before they had uh, myself and my sister, um, they were both Catholic. My mother's Puerto Rican, my father is p- like part Italian. They're both, you know, classic kind of Roman Catholic upbringings, but they They converted to Mormonism, and they raised us in the religion. So I'd say until I was about 15, I was kind of an active member in the church, and around 15 is when I um, officially, I guess, technically left left the religion. You realized it wasn't for you. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it was probably several years before that, but 15 was when I was like, you know, kind of verbalized to my family. I don't, I'm a non-believer. I don't want to be involved in this anymore. Wow.
2: Was that a big thing? What what happened with oh, them? Yeah, it was um, a really big thing. Yeah.
0: So my mother and my father divorced when I was six. So my mom sort of just stopped going. And I, I, I would consider my mother more of like a secular humanist. She's not a religious person. And so as I grew Up, I wasn't feeling a lot of sort of pressure from my mother. But my father is very devout. He remarried another Mormon woman. They had children. um, Very active in the church. And um, yeah, when it was time for me to basically say I I really can't do this anymore, I tried. I tried for years. But when I finally was like, I can't do this anymore, yeah, it caused quite a big rift. Like I like I said, I was very lucky to have the support of my mother. But my father was like, you know, I have a moral obligation to the Lord to, you know, put you in church and all of the activities until you are 18, uh, as long as you live here. And I was, they had partial custody, so I wasn't there very often. (laughs) And at that point, I was pretty precocious and pretty snarky. And I was just like, you know, I think that I'm of an age of consent that I could make a decision about this and he was like as long as you stay under my roof you're gonna be going to church and i was like then i guess i won't stay under your roof and wow. that's what happened we we didn't even really speak for for some time but we've we've since repaired obviously i'm much older than that now <laughs> and um he's still very active in the church and it is his lifestyle and he knows that i'm an atheist and this is my lifestyle um but yeah at the time it was quite a tension well, in the family. i can imagine i can mm-hmm. imagine mm-hmm. Yeah. You
3: also were really interested in many, many different fields of science, right? So what were your first uh, interests in science? You know, it's funny
0: because I... I like many young women in the United States or really I could say in the Western world experienced a lot of classic kind of stereotype threat and a lot of the mm-hmm. same issues that a lot of young women in in academia or I shouldn't even call it academia in in education like when I was in elementary and middle school I experienced the same kinds of pressures that a lot of girls experience where I didn't think I was particularly good at science and math um, I thought that you know STEM fields weren't for me I didn't see a lot Lot of role models in them, and because some of the courses didn't come quick or naturally, and a lot of the boys, at least it seemed like it came quick and naturally for them, I now understand that that has a lot more to do with how we're socialized and a lot more to do with the types of feedback that we get from our parents and our teachers. Um, but at the time, I was like, "Oh, yeah, that's not really my field. That's not what I want to do." So. When I did my undergraduate degree, first it was going to be in vocal jazz performance. I was a singer all Ooh. through high school, a performing jazz singer. And so, I, yeah, I went to college to study jazz. <laughs> there you <laughs> go. Um, this is kind of random. Um, kind kind of realized that doing it academically, it took some of the, I don't know, the enjoyment out of it. And so I switched gears. I ended up majoring in psychology. Mostly because I thought it was like a quick and easy way to get all my credits in. <laughs> um, it didn't seem overly challenging. I didn't really recognize my interest in it until I was deep in psychology. Just basically a lot of the credits I could double dip with, like health psychology. Oh, that also gives me a health credit. And, you know, there are a lot of those kinds of classes. Um, but by the end of it, I had really fallen in love with the with neuropsychology. And I had found... Um, a deep interest in it. I did an undergraduate thesis. So we had the option to do a Bachelor of Science or a Bachelor of the Arts in Psychology. And the Bachelor of Science required a bit more work and uh, a research project, a thesis, um, and some extra kind of research design coursework. So I ended up doing that, um, ended up working for a neuropsychologist and really enjoying that. And then I switched gears for my master's degree. Uh, About a year later, I took a year off and then I went into the biology department and studied neurobiology because I kind of just felt like in psych, I wasn't getting quite the background that I needed. Mm. Um, So I did a neurobiology degree for my master's and and worked as a neurobiologist for a little while before I got into public science communication. So by then it would have been mid to late 20s. Um, And then I took quite a long time off because I went back to school for my PhD in 2017 So, yeah, it took quite a bit of time away.
2: Yes, and that gave (laughs) us some very happy results this uh, (laughs) summer, we heard, right?
0: Yeah, so I just finished, finally, defending my – what we call our dissertation, our doctoral dissertation. Mm -hmm. I know that in the UK, at least, they call it the thesis at the doctoral level, so, you know, different terminology. But I finished defending my my research – in August. And I also wrapped up on my internship, which is the final year of Mm -hmm. your PhD in clinical psych in the US. Because it's sort of, in some ways, it's sort of like an MD PhD. It's not a medical degree. So that's, you know, that's just an analogy. It is a an academic degree with a clinical kind of applied component. So Mm -hmm. you've got to do all of your patient contact hours all of your clinical work on top of all of your research and so there's just quite a lot it's you know generally takes about six to seven years to finish a phd in clinical psych took me about six and yeah finished everything up in august so mm. i am now officially doctor congratulations couldn't use, couldn't use the title before <laughs> thank you so much.
2: <laughs> it's quite an achievement i think
3: it's awesome can you tell us more about your phd so what what did you write about
0: Absolutely. So I special, I mean, it's, it's a little hard to say I completely specialized, but I found that my interest, um, a lot of my interests were in end of life and how individuals prepare for the dying process. I, I had worked in practicum placements, both in the foster care setting which is wildly different. And then in um, in a cancer setting, and uh, then I did my internship in a gerontology, so an older adult clinic. And when I was working in the cancer center, obviously, I was working with individuals who were in survivorship, individuals who were thriving, individuals who were in active treatment. But unfortunately, there was always a percentage of individuals for whom their cancer was quite advanced, and they were starting to face some of the decisions that they need to face um, when grappling with their own mortality. And I I found that that was an area that I really enjoyed and it's probably going to be the area where I I focus. I I practice from a more existential perspective, um, which really lends itself to that Population. And so for my research, I decided to study the experience of individuals choosing medical aid in dying. So in the United States, at least, there are um, 10 states, 11 jurisdictions, so 10 states plus Washington, D.C., which um, have legalized medical aid in dying, which is the practice of. Taking a medication that's been prescribed to you, if you have a prognosis of six months or less, so you're dying of a terminal disease, in order to hasten your death and die on your own terms, which is distinct from euthanasia in which the um, physician or the nurse would actually... Um, administer it. a substance, yeah. Mm. yeah administer, it. Mm. so we don't. That's not legal in the U.S. It is in Canada. It is in parts of, of Europe and parts of South America. But in the U.S., medical aid in dying is a legal practice in, in parts of the U.S. About twenty five percent of the population has access to it. So, yeah, I interviewed several patients in California to ask them about their experience and dug deep into so, some of the qualitative aspects of the psychology involved and look for different themes. In the narratives that they gave me, and wrote a pretty in-depth. Um, it's called an existential hermeneutic phenomenological study. Wow, for the type of qualitative. case <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's very sort of psychology meets philosophy, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, actually a lot of a lot of German researchers <laughs> I was referencing in that. For All
2: sure. right. Uh, by the way, yeah. is is that open access? We talk a lot about open access, and we want research to be available to as many people as possible
0: yeah so when it came time to publish so with a dissertation or a thesis it's always published in full at the very end so it's the whole like i don't even remember 180 some odd pages um and we publish at least through my university we publish through a a publisher called proquest and they're a pretty common publisher for dissertations and theses and you have the option you can either publish traditionally which is uh, i I think it's free or low cost. Maybe my university, I think, paid for the copyright. Mm -hmm. Um, Or you can publish open access, which is a one-time fee for the researcher. So I actually chose to pay to publish open access so that now nobody has to pay a fee to access that research. I will probably also do some more um, kind of... What's the word I'm looking for? Like ingestible versions of it, you know, for journal publications. So take a component of the of the research that I did and do a write-around that's much shorter about a specific component. But the entire dissertation in full is accessible online. If you just Google Cara Santa Maria or Santa Maria Medical Aid and Dying, you should find it pretty easily. And it's open access. So it'll be a full PDF, no fee for you to That's to great. Read it.
2: Good for you. Yeah. Good for you.
0: Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So that I want to stick with that a little bit. This seems like a rather – it's a heavy subject, right, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and you meet people who are not very happy with the place they are. And also I'm thinking in the U.S., a lot of people are religious and you come in as, a, as an atheist, as an – if not outspoken, but openly atheist. How does that go? <laughs> Is that a problem? Yeah, yeah.
0: So, you know, I think that the research and the clinical work are heavily related, but also distinct. So in my research, I am not acting as a clinician. So I'm not there to offer therapy. Um, I think that the experience I found of the research participants engaging in the research study was passively therapeutic. For them. A lot of them expressed to me that it was meaningful for them to share their story and that it really did have kind of a legacy component to it. They wanted to help. They wanted doctors to hear their stories or other patients to hear their stories so that they knew what options were available and they knew sort of what what's went right for them and what went wrong for them so that maybe different practitioners can, can be mindful of that. But my role as a researcher was to listen, in a clinical setting, my role is also to listen, but it's also to validate and to support. And um, I think that, you know, it's interesting, because a lot of my patients are religious or have been religious, whereas, weirdly, all four of the um, qualitative research participants that I interviewed were non-religious. So two of them considered themselves atheists, one of them considered herself a lapsed Catholic, but who is, quote, hedging her bets, (laughs) the other um, was more like secular Jewish. And so religion really didn't factor in a terrible amount in a lot of the interviews, although we did touch on it a little bit. I asked them all, what do you think happens when you die? I asked them, you know, about their own personal values and philosophies or religion, however they would want to describe it. Um, From a clinical perspective, it is not uncommon, you're right, in the US, that I'm working with individuals uh, for whom faith is a big part of the dying process. And my view has always been a constructivist view. So that's a term we sometimes will use in psychology and and philosophy, which is that although reality exists and it is uh, consensual and it is – evidence-based, we do still, from a psychological perspective, all construct our own realities. The the world we live in is a world that was shaped by our experiences. So each individual on this planet has a construction of reality that is... appropriate for their own sense making and it's m- not my role as a no. clinician to impose upon that or you're not there that. to
2: tell them that there's no god <laughs> that would be Absolutely very not. very stupid and, yeah, and some
0: of you know some of my my clients know that i'm an atheist sometimes that is self-disclosed some of my clients don't um i only self-disclose when i feel very strongly that it's in service to the patient not Not for my own benefit. But I think one thing that's really cool about atheism, or at least this is how I've always been, or secular humanism, however you want to define it, is that it allows me to see all of these different worldviews. I can sort of... Take the frame of my patient and empathize with where they're coming from, because if I had a very particular belief system, it might be hard for me to see outside of my own belief system. But because I don't have a belief system at all, I identify my own atheism as a lack of belief Um I think it allows me to be able to really empathize with any person depending, you know, who could be coming from any direction and and try to understand them and meet them where they are.
3: Yeah, it really like takes you out and that you're able to look at it from above almost. (laughs) Not really above, but
0: Mm. yeah. that makes you (laughs) neutral
2: as well in in a way. Yeah,
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think it helps because it is true that you mentioned um, faith is a huge part of the experience of grappling with one's mortality. And it's a big part of how they make sense of the experiences at the end of life. And so it's important for that to be a part of the equation, a part of the algorithm when I'm working with them for sure.
3: Mm. I think I also would be really interested, um, but I don't know if you have numbers for that. If there are, um, religious or like de- denominations that would rather take medical aid in dying and others mm. who, who wouldn't.
0: I'm actually curious about that as well. And and you're right, I'm not sure we even have that literature yet, because mm-hmm. it's such a tiny percentage of people yeah. who utilize it. And it's only really been available within, well, several decades now in Oregon. But you know, some states only only passed their legislation a few years ago. But in in my very tiny sample, which I can't apply, it's actually quite unscientific for me to try to apply quantitative assumptions based on my qualitative research. You know, it is interesting that all four of the individuals who i I put out um, flyers, you know, I put out flyers to a large listserv of physicians and on social media. And the four individuals who actively reached out to me to say, hey, I want to share my story, none of them were religious. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if the more kind of secular religions are the religions where you see more individuals, and I know that sounds like a an oxymoron, but it's not really, <laughs> but the more kind of um, Unitarian or non-denominational approaches, or like secular Judaism, as opposed to the very, very evangelical faiths, where I did notice one of my participants who, like I said, she she considered herself a lapsed Catholic. She didn't believe in hell. She didn't believe in some of the kind of Catholic um, dogma, but she said she was hedging her bets quite a bit. And really grappled because she saw medical aid in dying as suicide. Whereas Most practitioners don't. I personally don't see it as suicide. I think it's ideologically, functionally, logistically distinct from suicide. Um, it's, it's hastening death that's already on its way. But she very, she very much saw it as suicide and grappled deeply with the fact that she would, she would be committing a mortal sin in her view. And so it is interesting that there may be some religions and even some cultures for whom medical indi- aid and dying wouldn't even be an option because they see it as um, sort of against mm-hmm. their, their belief mm. structure. Yeah,
2: it's, it's a very sensitive subject. And as you mentioned briefly, some European countries have this or versions mm-hmm. of it. Sweden, where I come from, we don't have it. But there's a, a, a case at the moment where a doctor actually helped, didn't administer the drugs, mm-hmm. but made everything available to this person and the thing was that this person was approved to do this but in Switzerland but he couldn't Ah. he couldn't travel because it was the pandemic so his doctor said okay I'll do it for you here even though I know it's against the law in Sweden he did it he stood back he specifically said I'll put I'm putting my hands behind my back so I'm not aiding Mm -hmm. you in any way and then, when it was all over, he called the police and said, "This is what I've done, and I think that should yeah. be legal." And now he has—he lost his medical license. He didn't; he wasn't punished by the legal system, but he lost his medical license. And now he's trying—he has appealed that, and he's starting this uh, debate about it. And that was the yeah. purpose.
0: Yeah. And that's, I think it's a common way that legislation moves forward in the US as well as by legal precedent, right? By an individual choosing to stand up against something that they see as an injustice and basically appealing the courts and saying, you know, this may be how things stood before, but I want to try and make an argument for why things should change. And sometimes those things are successful. And sometimes, unfortunately, they're not. Um, but this is a complicated issue, uh, ethically, morally. You know, I have a very particular stance on this issue that imposing – um I think restrictions are important, but restricting individuals, uh, in whole cloth, you know, making, making this illegal or banning the practice takes important choices out of the hands of individuals. And I find it very strange that in almost every Western nation, we euthanize our pets very yeah. readily without blinking an eye and our pets technically cannot tell us that that's what they want mm-hmm. you know we read their clue they tell us in the ways that they tell us but we are tasked yeah. with making that decision on their behalf yet you know grandma's over here saying yeah. this is what i want to do and we're like you don't know what you're talking about grandma like that's a bit to me um, that's
2: strange and many people yeah. refer to yeah. their pets as family members so
0: mm-hmm. it's yeah. even yeah.
2: close in that respect
0: it's very strange that we don't want to see them suffer yet we're yeah. somehow okay with yeah yeah I mean in Germany i don't have really experience.
3: have to talk about why we are not doing it ah. I mean it's pretty obvious why Germany has a problem with uh, with uh, right. even <laughs> using the term euthanasia historically and so on so I won't go deeper into that but I would like to go deeper into a field that I got to know you through and that's science communication Mm. so can you tell us about how you got into science communication in the first place
0: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it was kind of a strange turn of events. You know, sometimes I've had young people reach out to me and ask me, you know, what should I study? How, what path should I take? And I'm like, man, when I first started this, you couldn't study this in school. Mm -hmm. Like there weren't really um, sanctioned sort of pathways for it. Now there are, there are whole departments in, in different fields of science and also in journalism and communications where individuals can actually build an academic um, training sort of protocol around this but for me you know i studied like i said psychology first then then neurobiology and i was working in a lab but i was also teaching a lot and i think at the time i realized that i probably wasn't going to be a research scientist <laughs> it's probably not where i was going to spend the majority of my time it wasn't as i mean it was stimulating but it, it there was just something that i felt like was lacking and so i would find myself as a graduate student, spending so much time teaching, which is like the opposite of what most people do. They're, most of m- my friends were bemoaning the fact that they had to teach to make money because they just wanted to be in the lab. And I was like trying to leave the lab all the time to go teach <laughs> another class because I really enjoyed it. And I think that was sort of the initial indication for me that SciComm might be the route that would be, um, that would be something I would like to do. But really, it was a total fluke that I landed in that world in coming to L.A., And sort of talking to just randomly meeting some of the right people talking to people about what I do. It's not uncommon in LA. It's like, oh, you're an actor, you're an actor. I'm like, oh, no, I'm a scientist. It's like, wait, what? And so, you know, oh, you should come on this news show. And maybe you can talk about this new lander on Mars or this new and just, you know, all of these little kind of stories that were going on, having the opportunity to have a slight public platform to start discussing them Um in a city that actually has such incredible scientific activity happening, but in some ways it's sort of eclipsed by the industry mm. of LA, which is heavily entertainment. Mm. And so I, I managed a way to sort of blend those two things and and do science communication through traditional entertainment platforms. I started in television, but quickly moved into podcasting and public speaking. Um, and I still periodically, you know, I give talks every so often. I even do TV work still periodically. I still have an agent who I work with. But I had to sort of shelve a lot of that when I started my internship, mm. because it's an nine-to-five full-time psychology gig. Um, And so that was a huge adjustment. I was like, oh, no, I have to go back to, like, waking up early and going into a (laughs) clinic and having a boss and all these things I wasn't used to. (laughs) Terrible. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Who wants it?
2: But it's interesting. They saw you in L.A. as a scientist. And Mm -hmm. so you were asked to do... You mentioned lunar landings. landings. Mm -hmm. I mean, what did you know about that?
0: I know. It was so funny. Like... The minute that you start speaking somewhat knowledgeably about a scientific topic, I cannot tell you how many times a producer would be like, "Well, you can talk about that Nobel Prize in Chemistry, right? Or you can talk." And I'm like, "I'm not an encyclopedia. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's not. I'm a biologist, but." You learn, you learn to be at the time I had to be a generalist, because there really weren't a lot of people. I mean, there were obviously a lot of people all over the country doing this. But in my market, in my niche, there weren't a lot of other people available. So they would reach out and say, hey, there's this new news thing, can you come talk about it? And I would study it, you know, and I think there are transferable skills, which is nice. I know how to read a scientific paper, I know how to interview somebody who works in that field and ask them the right questions so that I can feel more knowledgeable. And and sort of translate okay at what let what amount of information is necessary to be able to tell this story in a way that's understandable and still accurate mm. It's always that f- kind of balance mm-hmm. between the two. we don't want to oversimplify it so much that we we lose accuracy, but we don't want to get so technical that it's no longer making sense to people, and so I'd be able to to kind of get in there and try and translate something very complicated for the general public. But don't get me wrong, I I did not have expertise about a lot of the things that I was translating. So I was translating already a communicated level. Mm-hmm. So I might be going into a press release or a journal article, but I'm not in the weeds in the lab doing this kind of work. So, you know, it really varied, but sometimes I can get super nerdy about things that I am passionate about or things that I do have background in.
2: Well, I think I think you're 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 one of the people who can combine knowledge of science and communication at the same time. We have a lot of people, brilliant scientists, but try Mm -hmm. to ask them anything, and they either go into so much detail that you they lose you in Mm -hmm. you lose track in in twenty seconds, or they they overgeneralize, or they they always hedge their bets and say, "Well, we don't really know," and then Mm -hmm. and because that's the scientific. Motto or that's how you should feel about it, but that's not what people want to hear. They want to hear what things really are. And finding that sometimes they come out
0: a bit mealy mouthed about it. It's like, well, we don't really know anything. It's like, (laughs) wait, so why 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 am I talking to you then? (laughs) Yeah,
2: (laughs) Yeah. So you have that special gift that you can, you can do that. You can talk to people or can communicate science. In a way where it's both accurate and still interesting. And we bemoan the fact that we don't have enough of you, Kara. Can we clone well, you?
0: The thing is, I don't even think, I don't think it's a gift. I think it's a skill. And I think it's a skill that I developed over just doing it a lot. Like I was very lucky that I had opportunities early on to do it. And maybe I did have the gift of confidence of like walking <laughs> yeah. into to these areas where maybe I should not have been early on. But I was not good at it at the beginning. Just go listen to early episodes of, of Talk Nerdy. It's all
3: least- good? I did. <laughs> no,
0: <laughs> you're too kind. You're too- yeah. But, you know, you just, the more you do it, the better you get it. It's just like, um... Really, any any other skill. So, reading scientific papers. The more you read them, the better you are at sort of understanding context and understanding statistical approaches and the things that you don't don't know or don't understand. You ask questions about. You figure it out. You 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 ask. You know, um, Doctor Google if you can. You try and dig deep in the weeds. And if you can't find, you know, it there or the stuff that you find, you're unsure if you're if it's valid or you're unsure if it's um at the level that's necessary. I'm I'm also very lucky. I think this is a huge privilege of mine. I have a ton of friends in different scientific fields that I can call up anytime and say, "Hey, I'm confused about this thing. Have you ever, you know, read about it? Have you ever studied it?" And for me, that has been the greatest gift is just asking people who are really smart all of my dumb questions so that i can understand things better hmm.
3: hello to Ellie ward at that point
0: <laughs> oh yeah that is her, that's, her. <laughs> that's so funny um yeah <laughs> Allie, who's a good friend of mine who does uh the podcast ologies that is like all her t-shirts say ask, yes i think it's ask smart people D- stupid dumb questions. questions yeah <laughs> something like that yeah dumb good idea yeah. good idea <laughs> yeah.
3: Yeah, so you also mentioned podcasting, and we said before that you're doing Talk Nerdy and also the SGU. Can you maybe tell us more about these two um, formats?
0: Yeah, so I started Talk Nerdy in 2014. At the time, long story short, I was actually doing a television show that was a daily television show. It was a live daily and it was a ton of work. We'd get there early in the morning to do our morning pitches and it was a lot of writing and, and things during the day and then we were live on air in the evening. And it was kind of like killing me and <laughs> it was pretty brutal. And I was working with an executive producer at the time who was like very, very sexist. And I was just really started, starting to lose myself as I was doing the show. I wasn't able able to cover the things I wanted to cover. There was a lot of sort of and this is not uncommon for women who are working in television, but kind of a little bit of, well, I shouldn't say a little, it was pretty overt, um, sort of gaslighting of like, well, let's maybe, maybe you're not the person to do this, or maybe, why don't we give this to your male co host? Or, okay. And by the end of that show, I was just really feeling insecure about my capabilities. And, and I went on another podcast, and the host of it, uh, guesting, I guested on podcasts all the time. And the host of it was like, why don't you just start a podcast? Like, you're your own producer, you get to talk about whatever you want, you don't have to, do your makeup or wear a tight dress because nobody can see you. And I was like, this sounds amazing. <laughs> and so I I did. And I started podcasting then. And I, I, I basically chose this. This is going to be like, ooh, this is my secret. Um, I chose a format because I was working on a live daily show that took up so much of my time. I chose a format where I was like, how can I work smart, not hard? How can I do sort of the least amount of production to get the most bang for my buck? And so I decided an interview show would probably be the um, the best approach. And I'm so glad that I did because I think that over the years of me doing journalism work, in addition to the Psychom work, I have really improved as a reporter, as, as an interviewer. It even helped when I did my dissertation, right? I was interviewing my mm-hmm. participants. And having done now four hundred I don't I don't know what number I'm <laughs> on, but episodes of Talk Nerdy and interviewing that many scientists, science communicators, science writers, academics, um, just interesting intelligent people it's really helped me develop those skills. So it's wildly different than the skeptics guide where I am one of five uh, co-hosts or rogues, as they call them, where we do different segments on the show. Some of them are repeated segments, um, but we also cover, each of us covers a, timely news item in the sciences or in the skeptical world. And we all sort of have our beats, you know, like if you listen to the show regularly, you know that Bob will often talk about space or material science or physics. I tend to cover things that are more in the neuro or psych or medical or sometimes journalism world, also some anthro And paleo stuff I find really interesting, but I'm not often going to be covering something about like a black hole. It's just not my area of expertise or interest, if I'm being honest. And I tend not to cover like the older school skeptical topics like oh Loch Ness like I don't care it's just like not that's not where I like to put my effort um but you know Evan does and so it's great that on the show he's he's often talking about psychics and mystics and cryptozoology and things like that you know it's not not my
2: approach no but that's the one of the strengths with of the Mm. SGU that you all bring your own perspective and and uh, expertise to the show
0: yeah and then lately actually i've been joining my friend eli bosnick along with heath uh and Wright and no illusions on their show god awful movies about once a month i'll do an episode so they're weekly but mm-hmm. i um i'll join them periodically on the show where they will we will watch a terrible christian movie <laughs> and <then laughs> skewer it and it's very fun <laughs> sounds really good
2: so it's good because there's so many ways you can consume Cara Santamar if you will
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's, that's it's true uh, <laughs> it's true and there's still I think some of the television work that I've done is still accessible it depends right like that live daily show I was talking about Take Part Live mm. I don't think that's still on air <laughs> but because I did so much work with National Geographic a couple of the larger shows like Brain Games or Explorer are still available for most people on like Disney Plus and so yeah it's kind of coming at you from all angles <laughs> yeah, very good. She's, she's everywhere, everywhere. Yeah. 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 you already mentioned
3: the tv show that it was very hard for you that um, it was at times sexist and we know that it's like harder for women to get encouraged to work in in fields of science or also to work in psychom how have you managed to get where you are and what needs to change for every little girl or every little (laughs) non-male because we also want to be inclusive to make the situation better so what what needs to change
0: yeah. I mean, uh, so much needs to change. It's, it's, you know, I don't think it's one thing and I don't think it's something that we can flip a switch mm-hmm. on. I mean, it's like the patriarchy needs to change. Like, how do we go about that? Right. So just, I think first comes um, insight and awareness and we need insight and awareness before we can have action. I think that we struggle with uh, excessive levels of misogyny and sort of anti-feminist rhetoric It's not just in the U.S. This is global. I think some places are, you know, more progressive than others. But we know that the patriarchy is... I've actually just finished Angela Saney's book called The Patriarchs, where she has dug quite deep into the origins, or at least where we think the origins of the patriarchy are. Like, how is this system of oppression continuing? And, and, you know, it it wasn't always this way, but it has been this way for most of our sort of, I don't want to say capitalist human history, but definitely most of our, um, um, what's a good word? Recorded history? Well, yeah, but like really since we have utilized capital, mm. right? Since since we have exchanged some sort of symbol of wealth for goods and services, mm. that seems to be around when patriarchal thought or patrilocality or patrilineality started to develop. It was when marriages started to have more, uh, I guess we could say, like social... Mm-hmm reasonings and clout and and when we were starting to record where people lived and how much people owned. And, and that's when we started to see this sort of chattel slavery form of uh, of patriarchy developing. And obviously, it's much more complicated than that. But I think that, you know, a huge part of the problem for women, whether it be in STEM or honestly, women in, in television, I mean, mm-hmm. it was like just as bad, if not worse, when I was working in TV, Is yeah inclusivity and like you said not just women but um, trans women trans men non-binary individuals you know gender non-conforming individuals just inclusivity just thinking about the experiences of Mm -hmm. the people who are different from you Mm. (laughs) and. Uh, understanding that my experience is not the same as everybody else's mm-hmm. experience and i want to ensure that people always feel safe and that they always feel like they can you know uh speak up and have their voices heard but there's so many th- it's not it's overwhelming but it's also just like not that hard because it's so bad <laughs> <laughs> that like yeah. we don't have to do much even just to make things a little yeah. bit better hmm.
2: yeah uh, but still it seems to be a hard problem to to get a but I, I think what we can do and what you are doing and what we mm-hmm. try to do as well. I mean, you highlight it when you see it and say, hey, this is not yep. right. This mm-hmm. shouldn't be this way.
0: 100%. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me, I, I quote her a lot, but there's a, a writer, um, psychologist actually named Beverly Tatum, who wrote a lovely book called um, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? And she writes about um, about race, racism, racial identity development and anti-racism. And so she's obviously using that frame, but I think it, it can also apply to gender discrimination. But she talks about, she uses this um, metaphor of the moving sidewalk. And she basically says, you know, if you are in the airport and you are walking really quickly or even running on the moving sidewalk, you're, you're going in that direction really fast. But even if you're standing still on the moving sidewalk, you're still being carried in the same direction. And really, if you think of society as and kind of um, structural or institutional racism, mm-hmm. sexism, misogyny, as the systems that have been yeah. codified and laid down in place over... Centuries. Millennia, really. But I was going to say centuries. Yeah, yeah, millennia. (laughs) Um, even if you do nothing, just you're in it. You're part of the system. So she always says, unless you turn around and actually walk faster than the sidewalk is moving in the other direction, only then can you really call yourself anti racist or anti misogynist Mm -hmm. or, or, you know, deeply feminist or however you want to define it. And, and I think a big part of that is exactly what you just said that you have to, You can't just, like, ignore when you see it. Mm -hmm. You have to actively say something, speak out, push back. Because, obviously, the reason that it's hard for women in these fields is not because of women. (laughs) (laughs) The reason it's hard for women in these fields is because the people in power are still overwhelmingly men and they they're okay with things the way they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's why nothing's changing. Yeah, and mm-hmm. little
2: boys, get they grow up getting indoctrinated as well. So they contribute yeah. to the same problem. Oh, 100%.
0: Mm-hmm. And we know that misogyny and the patriarchy harms men. I mean, almost as much if not, well, I don't know. Well, it's, it's not a competition. But it's, yeah, it harms them a lot too. There's yeah. a great documentary mm-hmm. I always recommend for people called The Mask You Live In, which is a documentary about how we raise our boys mm-hmm. and how that ultimately affects the way that the, the experiences that mm-hmm. men have in the world. And it really, it's kind of for, I don't want to say kind of, because it's actually made by a woman, but it, it has a perspective that's very much for boys and men mm. showing the detrimental effects of misogyny and the patriarchy on men and boys mm-hmm. themselves, which is not a perspective we often see in sort of conversations about this. We often talk about how, how women or individuals who are not male have these experiences, but I think it's also important to see how, how it negatively affects men as well.
2: You know, sometimes in the skeptical movement, we hear, even in the Swedish skeptics where I'm active and in other places as well, that we shouldn't talk about these things because in the Mm -hmm. skeptical movement, because that's not science, that's politics, Mm -hmm. or that's uh, something else. Mm -hmm. How do we work to bring (laughs) fundamental human values into science and skepticism without sort of saying this is now a different area?
0: It's funny because I so I never kind of set out to be a skeptic. I never really knew what that was. Like I was a scientist and I was an atheist and I think that in being a scientific thinker and in being an atheist, there was a certain amount of philosophical humanism that sort of just like emerge from that approach. Or maybe it's just who I am that that I have these qu- sort of more humanistic perspectives. And they definitely were fostered and developed even more deeply in, in these last seven years or six years as I've been working on my PhD mm-hmm. and, and actively focusing on that. But I feel like there was a time when we called ourselves humanists, right? <laughs> like when that label was, I don't want to say it was synonymous with skepticism, but it was a sort of related mm-hmm. label or term that mm. individuals might use. And and when we think about secular humanism, I mean, isn't that what we're talking about is civil rights and, and social justice mm-hmm. and, you know, thinking about the plight of the of the human being and how we can be better neighbors and how we can be better citizens and and care for one another. Like humanism is not science and humanism is not religion. It's it's morality. It's it's like a, a philosophy. And I think that there is definitely space for that in these worlds. Now I get it on Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, you know, it's Steve's show. He's the host. We are his co hosts. He has a editorial policy that the show is a science show. It's not a social justice show, it's not a politics show, it's not a history show, it's not a news show. And so generally speaking, his rule and you know, he could probably get deeper into this than than I am, his rule is that unless the topic actively involve science, we don't go there. So like when we talk about issues around trans affirming care, we we do get into that, but we talk about it purely from a scientific perspective. And he, he has to edit me because I get <laughs> upset because that's not that that's not that wouldn't be my editorial policy. And it's not on my show. I, I get where he's coming from and why he does it. And I think that it's perfectly within his rights and I think it's valid for him to do it on his show. But also the skeptic's guide to the universe is not a synecdoche for the skeptic movement. No. And you're right, I think there is a huge problem in the skeptic movement. And I often see this from unfortunately men, um, libertarian men, individuals who are like, I don't want to have to think about those kinds of things. I like things the way they are. Unless this is a logical positivist statement, I don't think it's relevant. I'm like Okay, well, fine, go join your logical positivist philosophy club, because that's not what this is to me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's not what skepticism means. We, we are still people doing science, and we do it in a world. And we know that bias, racism, sexism, gender discrimination, all of these different things affect how we do science. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's yeah, inseparable. By people. Yeah. yeah. You can't, you can't well, separate them. Well, and if we don't talk about that, we're not going to do science better. Yeah. We're going to go, we're going to keep repeating the same mistakes that, you know, um, Annika, you referenced it before. And I think about the early foundings of my own field of mm-hmm. psychology. And you could say this about the foundings of evolution. You could say this about yeah. the foundings of a lot of different fields. These were eugenicist. You know, individuals who were trying to, like, really, when you look at early statistics in psychology and early psychological thought, most of these were white male Mm -hmm. eugenicists who were trying to prove the inferiority of black people. Yeah, like so many things,
3: like like IQ tests, BMI, like so many things are fucking, uh, sorry, super racist. <laughs> like- yeah, agree, uh,
0: yeah. agree. And until and unless we reckon with those things and we don't look at them as somehow separate from the scientific endeavor, but we see them as fundamental to the scientific invo- endeavor, I think that we're doing ourselves a disservice. We're lying to ourselves and we sort of got our heads in the sand. And again, I'm going to reference Angela Saini because I think she's such a great, um, she's a she's an Indian-British uh, science communicator and and science writer and BBC presenter who wrote the books in Inferior and superior about race science, kind of the rise of race science and all of these racist mm-hmm. approaches to doing science and how they've affected us still to this day, and also about um, gender and how biomedical research has been deeply sexist and why there are things we just don't know about the um, non-male experience because we just decided not to study it or because we decided, oh, that just makes our results too complicated. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we like the normatization of the white man, like that's normal and everything else is aberrant. Mm. Um, Like she does a very, very good job of unpacking that through a scientific lens and how the scientific sort of endeavor has mm-hmm. been affected by that. So, I agree with you. Mm. Um, You can't separate them. But I also understand that a podcast is not everything or an approach Mm -hmm. to to, speech is not everything. And, you know, everybody has their own sort of uh, way that they want to go about it.
2: But it occurs to me now that at QED, they actually found a good balance here. They do. I love QED. That makes QED unique because it doesn't insist on that everything should be statistically provable. There is there is i i also like the the skeptic uk the magazine they they have a subtitle to their magazine it's called the skeptic and then it says reason with compassion and i think yeah. that that's getting there that's making sure I that agree. we include also the human factor in in this yeah
0: they are humanists and every time i go to qed i'm like God, i wish that it was like this at uh, the conferences we have in the U.S. I think that the Nexus conferences and the smaller ones, like we're about to do something called Nauticon these ones that the SGU puts on. I think that there's been a concerted effort mm-hmm. to move in that direction, but again, it's a movement, right? Like you look at a lot of United States skeptic conferences and they're very good old boy and they do not feel very inclusive and they feel uh exactly like you described it, this like, well, we only talk about things that are provable. And I think when you just take that approach, it's, first of all, it's completely disingenuous. It's it's an agenda, just like anything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a narrative. And it's a narrative that suits, you know, the individuals who are in control or who are in charge. It It, it suits their... Uh, their goals. But when I go to QED, it feels not only incredibly inclusive, but intentional. Like they go above and beyond to find individuals to be on panels to headline that are, um that are women and gender minorities that are individuals of color that have per- and it's not just Oh, well, here is, you know, a black woman or a black gay woman talking about space travel it's like here's a black gay woman talking about the experience of being a black gay woman in this field or whatever the case may be so it's very perspective driven and i think when you go to qed and you leave qed you are given a gift of exposure Mm -hmm. to other ways of thinking yes and isn't that kind of the point
3: Mm -hmm. yes so i got inspired by um you so i want to ask you um what keeps you up at night, but also what makes you optimistic?
0: <laughs> oh yeah, God. Oh, that's you. your <laughs> question. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, those final two questions biting me in the ass. I, I should have, I should have seen this coming. Um, uh, so many things keep me up at night. I mean, I think that's the problem, right? And it's become sort of the the overarching theme on the show when I ask people. I think the most common thing people always say is climate change, mm. and for me, even though I think that is a very, very important answer to the question, it's only a microcosm of the real problem. Because I think the reason that we're grappling with climate change, the reason that the conflict that's happening right now in Israel and in Gaza, in you know Ukraine, in uh, you know, just kind of pointing to any geopolitical or interpersonal conflict, or like we talked about sexism and racism and all of these things, is it's fundamental. It's this like fundamental value that we have placed, especially in – and I blame the U.S. hugely for this. I don't think the U.S. is solely responsible, but in these sort of like Western capitalist ideological uh, frames, this emphasis on – individuality, on independence, on sort of pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. And the reason that I'm where I am is because I worked for it. And if you're not where you want to be, it's because you're lazy and you didn't. It's it's really dangerous rhetoric. And I think that the practice of more compassion, more empathy, really taking the frame of another person and really practicing, it's not easy, but really practicing saying, it doesn't matter what I would have done or how I would have approached this because they are not me and they did not have the experiences that I had. And whatever this radical compassion, I often uh, like the principle of charity, right? What is the most radical explanation you can have that's still kind and compassionate for why somebody is struggling with what they're struggling with? If we could approach our fellow human beings with that, I think that fundamentally, that lies underneath most of the conflicts that we deal with today. And that's what keeps me up at night, is the is the inability to take another human being's frame, to allow ourselves the grace to say, I may never understand where they're coming from, but where they're coming from will always be valid, because... Being alive is valid. Being a human being is valid. But that's not how we, it's almost like not how we monetize or how we justify the lived experience anymore. Living in a deeply, deeply capitalist society, Mm -hmm. people have to afford to be alive. And so they have to always feel like they're accomplishing or earning the right to exist. We like, especially in the United States, like there is no, I mean, yes, we have a minimum wage, but it's not a living wage. We definitely don't have universal basic income. We don't have universal healthcare. We don't have these, these fundamental human rights offered to every individual so that we can all sort of start from a level playing field and say, you know, just existing, that should be a given. Mm -hmm. We all deserve to just exist Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't have to afford to live, you know, you want to live a different way, fine, we can get into that conversation. But I think that's really the thing that keeps me up at night is how deeply this, this kind of Western individualistic, rugged individualistic manifest destiny, capitalistic mentality has become so woven into our worldview that we actually think it's human nature. We don't even consider for a second that this is just exposure. It's just kind of what we were trained Mm -hmm. on. And so I think on the flip side of that, what keeps me hopeful is that we still have models of individuals who either have overcome that or pushed back in the face of it or have maintained their core values from the beginning. And maybe it does mean looking to more indigenous practices. Maybe it does mean looking, having a more global perspective and really practicing that type of radical empathy to say, like, you know, I'm never going to be who you are. I didn't come from the place you came from, but what can I learn from you? What can I adopt? You know, what, what are you doing right that we're doing so deeply wrong that we can try and, um, we can try and adjust our perspective? How can I? I think there's so much to
2: learn from being just
0: curious. And just talking to people, just literally listening and observing Mm -hmm. and experiencing. And here's the thing, like in the past, I always like to say, you have to travel, you have to get out there, you can't stay in your own little bubble. And I know that's a privileged perspective to have, but we're in a, we're finally in a place where like, I will travel to some places that are very, very impoverished And I see that like most people still at least have access to the internet, maybe not all the time. Maybe there's no computer in their home, but maybe there's some sort of smartphone or there's some sort of hub. Like we are getting to a point where more and more we can be exposed to other people and we're actively choosing not to listen to them. We're actively choosing to just listen to the same rhetoric over and over. Hmm. Wow.
3: Yeah. Thank you a lot, Kara. That was really amazing talking to you. If people don't know how to find you, which would ma- surprise me, but maybe they <laughs> don't, like, where could people find you?
0: <laughs> yeah. So, so all of my sort of, um, SciComm work, I- well, not all, but you can Google me. But really, like, com is where you're going to find sort of my bio. And um, that is the host for my podcast. So you'll find Talk Nerdy at Karasantamaria.com. You can find me on social media. I'm not using Twitter as much anymore because, well, because. We, don't know we know why. know my ep- <laughs> uh, Yeah, Exactly. Um, but Instagram, you can find me, different places like that. It's funny because in terms of my clinical work, which is, you know, I'm just at that cusp where I've got to do a little bit more before I'm licensed. Once I start practicing independently, you've reminded me, I'm going to need to start building up that you know, if, you, if you're interested in reaching out to me from a clinical perspective, there is no way to really do it right now. So soon, <laughs> soon that will change. But yeah, from a psychom perspective, uh, that's mostly what you're going to find on the internet. And yeah, hit me up on social as well. Say hello. Um, you know, I can't always respond, but um, I try. So
3: say hi. She's yeah. really good at that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: thank you so much for this, Kara. It's you. been fascinating. Thank you.
0: Oh, thanks so much to both of you. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, so now I'm feeling even more envious. But yeah, it's always yeah. amazing to listen to Kara. Her way of communicating about anything that she touches on is so clear and so well rounded and well researched. So she doesn't like to talk just out of her ass. So it's 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 pretty good to know, to <laughs> see about someone. That's the first step towards being a good science communicator, I guess. Yes,
3: yeah, I think yes. that's
1: a minimum requirement.
2: A but minimum, she is yes.
1: really she's really great. Mm-hmm. I hope you all enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. We
2: did. Yeah,
3: it left me really inspired, so yeah. I'm happy we could, could could give that to our listeners. Mm-hmm.
1: But uh that basically concludes this week's episode, except a call to our listeners to send a couple of things our way. Not too long ago, we introduced word of the week and who's quacking. So we are looking for words, expressions in your own language, whatever uh, European country you live in, or a quack or someone peddling pseudoscience who's very famous or very popular in your country. And if you could send us a bit of information about them so that we can report on them so others can listen to that and find out what whatever the hell is going on in your countries from a skeptical point of view, that would be great. So we would really appreciate it. And the other thing that we would really appreciate if you could help us in other ways. So what other ways you can help us? Well, you could go to patreon.com
2: DESP and uh, send us a little bit of money, a dollar or a euro or Swedish kronor or whatever, because you can. I think you can choose at Patreon now what kind of currency you want to send us. But anyway, that's not the important part. The important part is mm-hmm. that it cost us money to do this. And uh we're basically paying out of pocket to do it quite a lot of the time, so we are we do appreciate all the help we can get,
3: yes, and even if it's only a little bit, like if thirty people do a little bit, then it's a lot, so yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah, don't feel bad, you can even put in like a dollar a euro a month. And yeah, you can that, limit that's, it. A, that's a coffee. <laughs> so give mm. us a coffee and we'll be so happy. In which Thank country <laughs> is a
1: coffee? A euro.
3: <laughs> Maybe Americano in one cup. Okay.
1: In some parts of, of Italy, you can get a, an espresso for, for about a, a euro. <laughs> See,
2: <laughs> well, yeah, give yeah, us yeah. an
3: espresso yeah. and, and because we are the, the team of the Espresso podcast.
1: <laughs> the Espresso Skeptics Podcast,
3: the yes. ESP.
1: <laughs> ay, um, ay, <Okay>. So, <laughs> yeah. Anyway this really concludes our show and I'd like to thank both of you Annika and Pontus thank you for this week thanks a lot and for allowing me to listen to the interview if, <laughs> even <laughs> if I couldn't make it thanks to Kara as well for agreeing to spend a lot of time with uh, our team and many thanks to our listeners for tuning in and please keep doing so and until next week goodbye tschüss we slatt I don't know how you can't
3: believe.
2: Uh, oh,
0: I'm sure it'll be fine.
2: I, I think th- that what we <laughs> have to edit out is us. So that, that's... Uh, <laughs> yeah. but, but I'm used to that. And uh, that's fine.
0: <laughs> there are also just like a lot of people in the US. There's
2: a lot of them, yes. <laughs> I'm not saying <laughs> there are too. too many of them, but...
0: Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
2: Get hold of or look or hear Santa. Ca- uh, sorry, I'm starting this sentence over.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm very much of a believer in espresso. Anyway, before people for the think outtakes. this is a commercial <laughs> for coffee, <laughs> we didn't name any makes.